Hello, and welcome to Lesson 3 of Bible 101. Before we get started, I'd like to say a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity once again to study the Word of God. God, I pray for your anointing today to be upon me, and for your anointing also to be upon the ears of every hearer of the Word of God. Help us to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Help us, Lord God, to apply your Word to our life, for it's meant to be applied. It's a living and active Word. And God, I pray today for your direction, God, that your word would give us divine direction. Lead us to that portion of the word that would be of great benefit to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me do a little bit of review, but I'm not going to take a lot of time on review. Uh, last time, we didn't cover a whole lot of ground, but we did talk about uh, Genesis 1 and 1 and the creation account. We talked a little bit about the existence of God, gave you some arguments for the existence of God. Uh, specifically, we mentioned the fact that the cosmological argument says three things. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. We talked about the fine-tuning of the universe. Uh, we also talked about the complexity of, of uh, the universe and complexity of the human cell and DNA. Um, we talked a little bit about um, the fact that when God created, he didn't do it all just at once. He, he did a little bit here and a little bit there, uh, and he would stop and say, it's good, and I applied that to our lives. When God works in your life, um, a lot of times he's not going to do it just all at once. He's going to fix this problem and then this problem and this problem. And there's an order to it. God is a God of order. God's not a God of chaos. God is a God of order. The New Testament tells us in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians that God is not the author of confusion. Um, God is not the author of confusion. He's a God of order. You're going to see throughout the Old Testament, uh, in particular when we get to the tabernacle plan, the very fact that God is a God of order. When God gave Noah the instructions to build the ark, he gave him specific instructions. He is a God of order. And so we learn that in chapter 1. And we also learn the fact that in verse number 26, I'm going to read it again, Genesis 1 and 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And uh, one of the things I mentioned is the fact that um, what makes mankind different from the rest of creation is the fact that we're made in the image of God. doesn't say that the animals were made in the image of God, but we're made in the image of God. We're made up of three components, body, soul, and spirit. When you die, your body goes into the ground and it rots. Um, when you die, your spirit goes back to God, but the soul lives on forever. Just like God's eternal, your soul is eternal. And there's a lot of different things we could talk about um, but the Bible does tell us that we're made in the image of God. And I also mention the fact that on the seventh day, God rested. And he established that forever as the Sabbath. He blessed that day. You can read that in Genesis chapter 2 uh, and verse number 3. And it says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. The word sanctified, by the, mean, by the, by the, uh, uh, by the way, means set apart. It means set apart, okay? So when you see that word sanctified, it just simply means set apart. It says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So he would forever set that seventh day apart. And seven is known as the number of completion in the Word of God. When you see the number seven, it's God's perfect number. It's the number of completion. For instance, you read in the book of Revelation about the seven spirits of God. Um, and many other times you'll read about the number seven, and it speaks about God's perfection, God's completion. All right? And um, so mankind was created on day six, but God blessed the seventh day 
and it's known as the number of completion. What that tells us is man without God is incomplete. God created you to need him. That's where we ended last time. So I'm going to pick up where we left off. And we're going to talk a little bit about Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And that's about as far as we're going to get in this lesson. Uh, it may be a little shorter than normal, uh, but there's several things I do want to point out here. Uh, number one, I want to point out the fact that Genesis chapter 1 uh, is a general overview of creation. But Genesis chapter 2 gives us a specific breakdown of the, cre of the creation. Um, and let's talk about uh, Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading with verse number 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. Again, I'm reading from the King James Version. Follow along in the translation you have. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now this is very beautiful because when it came time for the first birth, if you will, God's creative act, the very first man that's born, notice what it says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul if you look up the word spirit pneuma it means breath and one thing i find uh quite beautiful is that when you read in the new testament uh jesus said except a man be born again he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, you can read that in John chapter 3 and verse number 3. And then John uh, 3 and 5 says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot uh, see the kingdom of God. So you can't enter it, you can't see it, unless you're born again. Now notice, he said, be born again of the water and of the Spirit. Now there's something I want to point out. If you go over to the book of John, and you look after Jesus resurrected, one of the things Jesus said was, receive the Holy Ghost, receive you the Holy Ghost, and he breathed on them. And then you can read in the book of Acts chapter number 2, Now when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, watch this, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, notice, when Jesus said in John, uh, in the book of John, he said, uh, receive you the Holy Ghost, and he breathed on them. I believe it's John chapter 20. And then you read in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Ghost came in, it came in like a rushing mighty wind. Isn't it interesting that the very first birth, the first birth, the first creative act, he breathed into mankind's nostrils to give him that natural birth. But then when it came time for the birth of the Spirit, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. He spoke it in prophecy. And then in Acts chapter 2, it happened. that It came in like a rushing mighty wind. I like to think of it this way. It's like the breath of Jesus followed them up to Jerusalem. And then on the day of Pentecost, that breath came in and filled them. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Again, it's the breath of God that caused man to become a living soul. And if I could go back to my point in the last lesson, we're created to need God. We're created to need God, okay? Let's go down to verse number 8. 
And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay, so God uh, put him in the garden. All right, watch this. Verse number nine. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, that's a key word there, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. How many trees were in the garden? We don't know. We don't even know how big the garden was. But I imagine that there were hundreds, yea, even thousands of trees. And he said, he gave him every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. But then watch this, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, and then verse 10, and a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. All right, I'm going to skip down here a little bit. Let's go to verse 15, Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, somebody might say, Well, why would God put a tree in the garden they weren't supposed to eat? Well, let me back up to verse uh, number 16. Notice what God said. He said, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. He first pointed out their liberties. He told them what all they could do. Okay? And again, we don't know how many trees were in that garden. There must have been a bunch of them. But, uh, but God told him, he said, you can eat of any one of these trees. He said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. Okay? So, first of all, God told him what he could do. But he focused on his liberties before he focused on what he couldn't do, okay, on his restriction, restriction, singular. And he said, first of all, he said, this is what I don't want you to do. And then he said, secondly, he gave him a punishment for in the day. Now, notice that key word there. That's very important. We're going to return to that later. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Okay, and uh, so I want you to think about something. Number one, we're going to find out later that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the midst of the garden. It was in the middle of the garden, in other words. And so they had to pass by it. They probably saw it every day of their life. How long were they in the garden? We don't really know. But they, they, they had to see this, this tree on a regular basis. And it's in the middle of the garden. And somebody might say, why would God put that tree in the middle of the garden? Let me return to that question here for just a, a moment and answer it. You know, love is not really love without a choice. If God had not given them a choice, then it would just be robotic. Their service to him would be robotic. God wanted mankind to be different from the animals. God wanted mankind to be different from the rest of his creation. He wanted mankind to have a choice. He didn't want just a robot. He wanted something that was going to love him, someone that was going to love him out of their own free will, out of their own free choice. Okay, now let's go to uh, verse number 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. That word helpmeet for him actually means uh, I will make him a helper comparable to him. 
Okay, and it says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, this is verse 19 of chapter 2 of Genesis, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to, and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. Uh, again, there was not found a helper comparable to him. In verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Okay, I want to focus on this here just for a moment. The fact that when God got ready to make a helpmeet for Adam that was comparable to him, he took the bride out of Adam's side. Why is that important? Look in your New Testament. And we're going to get to this in a future lesson, but I do want to at least bring your attention to it. When Jesus was on the cross, after he had breathed his last, the soldier takes a spear and he takes that spear and uh, he shoves it into the side of Jesus and forthwith came out blood and water, blood and water, okay? We're saved by the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood is no remission of sins, okay? And so the blood, and I want you to think about that. When it came time for God to make a bride for Adam, he took the bride out of Adam's side. When it came time for God to make a bride out of Jesus, the church, he took it out of Jesus' side. Beautiful typology. Remember how I said in the first lesson that you're going to see that uh, not only is Jesus mentioned in prophecy, like in Isaiah 9 and 6 and Isaiah 7 14 and Isaiah chapter 53 in the suffering servant passage and, and Psalm 22 and many other beautiful passages, but you're going to see Jesus in typology as well. Now, I want to talk about... Um, the rest of this chapter here, verse number 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. You're not going to have cleaving without leaving. And let me just use this illustration here. It's the same thing with your relationship with God. When it came time for man and woman to establish a relationship, this is what God said. He said, a man must leave his father and mother so that he can cleave unto his wife. It's the same thing with you and God. You can't have a relationship with God and the world at the same time. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's what it says in the book of 1 John. And so you cannot have a relationship with God unless you first leave the world behind. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. But the prerequisite is, you've got to come out from the world. You've got to be separate. You cannot touch the unclean thing, and then God will receive you. You've got to leave the world in order to cleave to God. It's the same thing with a man and a woman's relationship. Uh, if a man and a woman uh, want to get married, you know, it's not as if they got to cut their parents off. Uh, but they've got to leave some things behind. They still can't, you know, keep living with their parents. It's going to be an awkward situation. They've got to find a home of their own. They've got to leave in order to cleave. 
Okay, and verse 25 tells us, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. It was not nakedness that brought shame. That's an important point. It says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 1. Before we get into this, let me remind you, they're in a perfect situation. This is a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden. And it's a beautiful situation. It's a perfect situation. Uh, they've got hundreds, probably thousands, maybe more than that, trees that they can eat from that's good for food and pleasant to the eyes. Uh, all of it's beautiful. And they've got all of these things that they can do. But I want you to notice something that even in a perfect situation, there's only one thing that they can't do. They can't eat of this one tree. They can't eat of this one tree. Okay? And uh, I want to go back to the book of Genesis chapter number 3 and verse 1. We're going to be introduced to this new character known as the serpent, but it's going to become very, very clear early on in this passage that this isn't just another creature. This is the devil using the serpent. So coming into the picture now of this perfect picture, this, this picture of paradise with a man and a woman in God, a beautiful relationship. There's no separation between man and God. He walks with God in the cool of the day. He has a relationship with God. There's nothing to bring division. There's nothing to bring separation until the devil enters into the picture. Chapter 3, verse number 1. Now the serpent was more subtle. That word subtle means crafty. Than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Let's stop. And let's talk about this. When God put that tree in the middle of the garden, did he put a fence around it to keep mankind from it? No, of course not. Did he put angels with flaming swords in front of it? No, of course not. What then did God put in front of it to protect them from eating it? The answer is nothing but his word. His word was the only protection that they had from eating of that tree. He said, don't do it, and in the day you do it, you shall surely die. First of all, he gave them a command, and then he gave them a punishment if they disobeyed that command. So what do you think the devil's going to attack? The first thing he attacks is that protection that's around the tree, the word of God. He says, yea, hath God said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Two things I want to point out. Number one, he says, did God really say? It's the same thing in our world today. The devil wants to attack the word of God. The word of God is under more attack than it's ever been. The Bible's under attack in universities. The Bible's under attack by scientists. The Bible's under attack um, by governments. The Bible is under so much attack. It, Satan's strategy has not changed. There's nothing new under the sun. His strategy's the same old strategy that he's always used. He attacks the Word of God. Why? Because that's the only thing that's going to keep you from sin is your knowledge of the Word of God. David prayed uh, in the book of Psalms and he says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's that word that's going to keep you from committing sin. Your knowledge of the word. 
And so the devil's going to attack that word. He wants to destroy your faith in God's holy word. He wants you to call uh, to 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 think that there's contradictions in the Bible so that you'll just uh, discount the Bible and not seek to live by the Bible. But I want to tell you something here today. You can trust the word of God. You can trust the Bible. And so the devil, his first thing is, Yea, hath God said, putting a question in the mind of Eve. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, I want to also present this to you, that apparently Eve was standing there looking at this tree, and the serpent saw an opportunity to talk to her about that tree. And so he said, Hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So remember, God, when he gave the command, he said, Of every tree you can freely eat, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat it. For in the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. He first focused on their liberties, and then he gave them the restriction. Well, the devil focuses on the restriction, not the liberty. Now the woman rightly answers him and says in verse 2, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But then verse 3, Now I want you to watch this very carefully. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now let's stop here to talk about it a little bit more. Notice what she said. You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say don't touch it. God just said don't eat it. Why is she adding this to God's command? Either one, Adam added it for her protection. Or number two, she didn't know the word of God very well. She heard it secondhand from Adam. You know, it's kind of like that game of telephone. You ever played that game, um, you know, where you whisper something to, you, you get a line of people up together and uh, the leader of the team whispers something to the first person. They whisper it to the next person. They whisper it. And by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's, it's totally misconstrued and it's not even the same sentence. Well, it's the same thing here, you see, because Adam received this command from God. You can read that in chapter 2. And then had he had the responsibility to tell his wife about the command. If I can speak for just a moment to, uh, to men and to women, uh, we have a charge from God that we need to teach our children the word of God. We need to be careful to teach them the word of God, not the opinions of man, but the word of God. Now, getting back to our subject... Uh, Adam was in charge of telling Eve. Now, either he didn't tell her correctly or Eve just didn't remember correctly. But when the serpent saw that Eve didn't know the word of God very well, he proceeded to go to, to uh, this next argument. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now, I want to show you something. Flip back to Genesis chapter 2. And let's go back to the initial command. Okay? Uh, in verse number... Um, 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God said, thou shalt surely die. Notice what the serpent said in verse 4. Ye shall not surely die. He added one word. He changed one word in the command of God. Let me tell you something. One word makes all the difference in the world. One word makes all the difference in the world. When it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the Word of God, it makes all the difference in the world. Make sure you know the Bible, because if you don't know the Bible, the devil's going to take your mind and he's going to twist it up like a pretzel. Make sure you know the Bible, because he changed one word here. 
ye shall not surely die. It's kind of funny. I heard in, in when the King James Version was, was, uh, uh, was being translated, um, they made a mistake in one of the early uh, copies. And one of the things they did was, ye shall commit adultery. Instead, instead of thou shalt not commit adultery, excuse me, it said thou shalt commit adultery. And they realized their mistake, and it was a horrible mistake. You notice the difference that one word can make. Ye shall surely die. Ye shall not surely die. Uh, one word makes a lot of difference. So uh, you're going to notice that, if, for instance, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, in the book of Matthew chapter 4 in the New Testament, again, I want to show you in typology, when Jesus was tempted, uh, the devil used the word of God to attempt to, to, uh, to attempt to deceive him and to tempt him. And uh, he used the word of God. He said, it's written, he shall give his angels charge over thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. He used the word of God in his temptation. Let me tell you something, the devil knows the word of God. And there's so much deception today. Uh, there's so many false religions out there today that take the word of God and they twist it. They may change just one or two doctrines. But let me tell you something, one or two doctrines is going to make a world of difference when it comes to salvation. And so, back to verse number four, And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Watch this. Now, I want to show you something. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Did you know that the devil told partial truth? Let me prove it to you. Remember, he told them two things. In the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened. Okay, let's go down to verse number seven. After they eat of it, uh, actually, let's read verse six and seven. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Bible tells us that there's three temptations that the devil likes to, do, to use, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Notice what happens here. And when the woman saw, lust of the eyes, that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You can see all three of them there. And, the, and watch this. Watch what happens when they eat of it. Verse 7, and the eyes of them both were opened. That's exactly what the devil told them would happen. So he told partial truth. Then notice the second part in verse 5. He said, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. If you skip down to the end of this chapter and uh, you read verse number 22, it says this, and the Lord God said, behold, the man has, has become as one of us to know good and evil. What the devil said would happen. Now, the devil told them that your eyes will be open and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's partial truth. What he did not tell them was the shame that they were, were going to endure. He did not tell them about the suffering that was going to come about, the separation that would come between them and God. He didn't tell them about the judgments that would come against them. He didn't tell them about the pain of their choices. He only told them about uh, the good aspects of it, but he didn't tell them about the pain of their choices. Okay, so he didn't tell them about the knowledge of good and evil and, and the detriment that was going to bring to them. He didn't tell them that when their eyes were going to be open, it was going to bring shame to them. It's kind of like today. The devil paints such a beautiful picture of sin. Uh, 
do this drug. It feels good. He doesn't tell you about the addiction that it's going to bring about. He doesn't tell you that the suffering that it's going to cause you. Man, drink this alcohol. It's going to be great. It's going to make you feel so good. He doesn't tell you about the dangers of becoming an alcoholic. He doesn't tell you about the fact that you could be wasting every penny on alcohol because now you're addicted to it. You see, it's the same as immorality. Man, this will feel so good. He won't tell you about uh, if you commit adultery, the broken families that, uh, that's going to come about as a result of that. He doesn't tell you about STDs. He doesn't tell you about all of the punishment that's going to come with it. He only wants you to see the good parts of it. But he paints this beautiful picture. But look very closely because somewhere in that picture is punishment and it's detriment. And it's broken lives and broken families and broken hearts. And so the verse number seven, we're going to return to this. And the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked. Watch this. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. In other words, they sought to cover their sin. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Sin always brings shame, and sin always makes you want to hide from God. A lot of people don't want to go to church. They don't want to read the Bible. Why? Because it brings shame. It makes them feel condemned. They don't want to feel condemned. They don't want to feel convicted. You see, conviction is meant to bring you to God. But a lot of people don't want to face that. So that's why I mentioned in the last lesson, some people justify their sin by saying they don't believe in God at all. They don't have to even deal with sin in that case. But sometimes there's prejudice in their heart because uh, they're not really viewing the facts of the existence of God because they don't want to consider that there's a God. They don't want there to be a God. Some atheists have been uh, honest enough to admit it. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to have to face up to the fact that, that if there's a God, i got to change my lifestyle. And so sin always brings shame, and sin always makes you want to hide from God. Okay, Now let's return to the Bible here. Uh, verse 9. Notice that when God speaks to him, it's always with a question. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11, And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Again, it's always with a question. Always with a question. Where art thou? Hast thou uh, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now he's presented mankind with an option. God usually asks us questions to make us think uh, and also to challenge us to tell the truth. Okay? Uh, and notice he says, Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Really, it should require a yes or no answer. Mankind can either deny it uh, by, by, by saying, No, I didn't do it, or he can say, Yes, I did do it. But Adam chose a third option. And notice this, And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Now notice what the man says. He, he blames the woman, but really he's blaming God, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. You know, this woman that you made out of my side, uh, you gave her, and she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I did eat. Now the sad part of it is, we read in the New Testament, mankind was not deceived. The woman was deceived, but mankind was not deceived. 
I find that very sad. Uh, why did he eat of the fruit if he was not deceived? Well, if I could put it this way, maybe he saw that uh, he would rather eat of the fruit and suffer the same consequences as the woman rather than to live without her. Now, I, I do find this, this interesting because a lot of times somebody may not commit a sin. They may never get involved in drugs. They may never get involved uh, with certain types of sin if it wasn't for the friends that they hang out with. Uh, I've heard many people say that, you know, uh, how they started on drugs or they started on alcohol or they started with immorality is because their friends were involved with it and they didn't want to be left out. And so it's the same thing here in the garden. Adam was not deceived. He knew what he was doing. Eve was deceived. The serpent had, had actually deceived her. She was deceived. But Adam was not deceived. And Adam thought, well, I'll just, I'm going to, I don't want to be without her, so I'm going to do the same thing she's doing. Let me just tell you here today that if you find yourself continually messing up over and over and over again and keep returning back and back and back to the same sin over and over and over again, maybe it's the friends you're hanging out with. Maybe you should change your crowd of friends. All right, let's return to the text here. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? Again, another question. And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And so, again, she passed the blame. If I could use this, the devil made me do it. And then in verse 14, now, God didn't give the serpent a chance to defend himself. Why? Because he could see the devil was using the serpent. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Verse 16. We're going to skip verse 15 and come back to it later. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Now I want to stop here long enough to say, this does not mean that they could not have children before the fall. Let me prove that. All right, uh, let's go back to chapter 1 of Genesis, and uh, let's go to the creation of man. And I want to read uh, verse number 27 and 28. And God created man in his image, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them. Verse 28 of Genesis 1. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, all right? So that does not mean that before the fall they couldn't have children. But now, what was meant to be a joy to them would now come with sorrow. Because he tells Eve, now when you have children, it's going to bring sorrow with it, okay? And so uh, then I want you to, to, to read what happened uh, in the rest of this verse. Let's read this. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Verse number 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, uh, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Now, he didn't say you wouldn't eat from it. He said you'd eat from it with sorrow because it's cursed. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Uh, you know, if you're planting a garden, you don't have to plant thorns. You don't have to plant thistles. You don't have to plant thorns. They're going to come up of their own. But boy, you sure have to work to make sure those flowers and those trees grow right. Uh, and then it says this, In the sweat of thy face, verse 19, shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou 
return. Now notice he said, in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread. In other words, the ground's going to yield to you, but it's going to take hard work. The ground's going to be cursed for your sake. You're going to have to work for a living. Men, when you get up and go to work, you have Adam to thank for that. Uh, but really, it's not the fact that mankind wasn't commanded to work because God did command him to till the ground, uh, to be a keeper of the ground, but it wasn't hard work. Now it's hard work. And so verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Uh, the word Eve means life or living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now I want to stop here and talk about this. Remember, go back to the command. When God said, in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. Now, did they die physically the day they ate of it? They ate of the tree? No, they did not die physically the day that they ate of the tree. But you could say they died spiritually because we're going to read later, they were cut off from the presence of God. That's true because spiritual death is merely separation between man and God. But I want you to notice something. Verse 21 says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins. That word coats of skins, it means animal skins and clothe them. If I can put it this way, it's almost like uh, the justice of God said, well, I've got to kill them. They've eaten of the, the fruit of the tree. But God's love said, I can't kill them. They're made in my image. And so justice and love collided. And the result was mercy. Mercy. You see, because mercy... Uh, is, is not just simply letting you get by with some, with a sin. There's still a price to be paid. Um, I heard the, the, uh, the story of a judge that was, uh, there was a young lady being tried for him, uh, before him. And this young lady, if I remember the story correctly, uh, she had a penalty that she could not pay and was going to have to serve jail time. And so the man said, uh, that will be such and such, uh, uh, dollars or jail time. And she said, I can't pay it. And he took off his robe and he walked down in front and he paid the fine for her. And then he, he said, fine has been paid, put back on the, the judge's outfit and brought the gavel down. Now, the rest of the story is he was that woman's father. The price still had to be paid. But he was, because of love, he paid it for her. That's the way mercy works. You see, a price still has to be paid. And in Genesis 3 and 21, God saw that a price had to be paid. And so he took that animal that did not have a soul, and he killed that animal, and he ripped the bloody coat off of it. And if I can just paint a picture for you, blood spewing everywhere. And God takes that coat, and he puts it on the man and his wife, and he clothes them. This is a beautiful type of what happened on Calvary. You see, because our sin, uh, because of our sin, and uh, the effects of sin, the Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You see, a price has got to be paid. And Jesus uh, tells us that, that uh, his price that he paid was the cross. He took the cross for you and me. He became a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took that cross for you and me because he couldn't just let us get by with our sin, but he took the penalty for us because of love. John uh, uh, 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's John 3.16 and 17. 
So a beautiful typology here. Now, I want to take some time to back up to verse number 15. I said we're going to come back to it and read it. And it says, when God's cursing the serpent, notice what he said. Verse 15, and I will put enmity, that means to make you an enemy of, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is known as the first messianic prophecy. The first messianic prophecy. What does this mean? It says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Now, he's talking about more than just the serpent. He's talking about the devil. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Okay? It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is talking about what was going to happen on Calvary. The serpent, the devil, was going to bruise the heel of Jesus. If I can use this illustration, if I was to take a shovel and if I was to swing it with all my might and hit you in the heel, you're going to hurt. I may break your, your, your heel. I may break your leg, uh, but you're still going to live. But if I took that same shovel and I swung it with all my might and hit you in the head, you might die. Uh, and so I want you to think about that because he's talking about a temporary wound and an eternal wound here, okay? And so what he's saying is that the seed of the serpent was going to inflict upon the seed of the woman a temporary wound. Jesus was crucified, but that was not the end. He didn't stay in the grave. Three days later, he arose. And so, uh, but he crushed forever the head of the devil. And one day he's going to take the devil and throw him into hell. We'll never have to worry about him again. And so this is a beautiful prophecy about Calvary, known as the first messianic prophecy. Now I'm going to bring this lesson to a close with this. Verse 22, Genesis 3 and verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Now you can read... Uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter number 2, uh, where the Lord Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus. And he tells them, He that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. So when mankind was thrown out of the garden in the book of Genesis, chapter number 3, his access to the tree of life, which would have made him live forever, was cut off. But then in the book of Revelation chapter 2, we're told that the overcomer will be given the tree of life to eat from. It's a beautiful promise. In other words, that separation that came between God and man will be restored. Verse number 23 of Genesis 3, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence it was taken. So he drove out the man. Sin, remember I said, it brings uh, shame with it. It makes you want to hide from God. It always brings separation between you and God. The more you sin, the more there'll be a separation between you and God. It says, so he drove out the man. Why? Because God is a holy God. If I could use this illustration, it's like your wife, uh, men, to the men, married men. Um, let's just say your wife has really cleaned the house and you've been working out in the garden. She scrubbed that kitchen floor and she's, she's vacuumed in the house and it's all clean. And then you come in with your muddy clothes and you track dirt all across the floor. That house that was once clean is now dirty. Now, she may have spent hours cleaning that house, but just a few moments 
uh, of you coming in and tracking in your mud made that house, that clean house, dirty. Well, let's say God is so clean, he cannot dwell with sin. He cannot dwell with that dirt and that filth of sin. And so God could not could no longer dwell with mankind because sin entered into the picture. Man was no longer clean. Now he's dirty. And so God drove man out of the garden. There had to be a separation between God and man. Uh, that's why the Bible tells us, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Speaking about the Lord. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. What does that mean? It means, does it mean you got to be perfect? No. Um, you know, with, completely without sin? No, you're going to make mistakes. But it does mean you should be working toward being holy. And you can't do that in, in and of yourself. The Holy Ghost is meant to come in and make you holy. You can only do it through the power of God, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He can help you to be holy, but you can't do that in and of yourself. And so verse 24, chapter 3 of Genesis says, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, means angels, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And we're going to close here. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to study the Word of God. I'm asking, Lord, that you would touch the ears of every hearer. Help us to understand that sin brings with it shame. Sin makes us want to hide from God. It makes us want to cover uh, to cover it and, and, and to stay away from God. And it brings a separation between us and God. But because of your sacrifice, Jesus, because you shed your blood for us, we have a way to get back to the Father. You said, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Only through a relationship with you, Jesus, can we get back into the presence of the Father. We thank you for that, and we give you praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.